Well, happy Easter, everybody. Whether you're here in the room or joining us online, I'm truly honored to have you along for the ride. Before we go any further, he is risen. Come on. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I was driving down Ada Drive on my way to church this morning, and a church on the way had it on their sign. And I'm like, we don't have a sign that puts letters on it, but we're going to do it live. But anyway, um, I, just confession, I absolutely love Easter, but I have to admit, it is a little strange as a pastor. I, I mean, it's not like you don't know what we're going to talk about this morning, Right. And in fact, I think I know why those of you who only come on Christmas and Easter don't come back more often. I've been thinking about this, right? Every time you come, you hear the same two sermons, right? Like Jesus is born, then he rises from the grave. And after a few years of that, you're like, I get it. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Jesus actually did some pretty incredible stuff in between being born and being raised from the grave. And so here's what I'd like to do. I'd love to invite you to give Keystone a try when it isn't Christmas or Easter, if for no other reason than I want you to know that I have more than two sermons. Okay? <laughs> All right. Now, I mentioned at the top that I really do love Easter Sunday, and I really do, and here's why. I think Easter is the perfect Sunday for anybody who's even considering becoming a Jesus follower. And, and here's why. If what we talk about today is true, and I believe that it is, then it really does change everything. It changes everything about life. It changes everything about death. It changes everything about religion. It changes everything about doubt and all those unanswered questions that can keep people from crossing the line of faith in Jesus. And so with the rest of our time today, what I want to do is show you what I mean. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, or if you're joining us for the first time in a long time, you should know that we're actually in the middle of a series of talks we've called Virtual Israel. And it's content that I've been preparing in, uh, for some upcoming trips to Israel that we plan to take over the next few years. And each week in this series, I introduce you to one of the sites that we plan to visit, and then I teach some of the content that I plan to teach at that location. It's like taking a virtual trip to Israel in the middle of a pandemic. And it's been pretty cool. I, at least I've had a good time. I hope you have too. And if you like it and you're hearing it for the first time, all of the previous talks are available online. Anyway, with our time today, we get to explore what just might be the most significant structure in the entire world. Seriously. It's a famous building in the Christian quarter of the old city of Jerusalem called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. As you can see from this image, it's very near the Temple Mount and the Golden Dome here is the Dome of the Rock. That's the third most holy site in the Muslim world. But like less than a mile away, you find this other dome, an, an earlier dome in the city of Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre contains, according to traditions dating back to at least the fourth century, the two holiest sites in all of Christianity, the locations of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, both locations under one roof. Uh, here's a couple of shots that I took the last time I was there in July of 2019. Uh, you can see in this first one something they call the altar of crucifixion. You see Jesus hanging on the cross suspended over the altar. Uh, and notice that there's a clear acrylic platform on which this altar stands. Uh, when you look down through that, they say you're looking at the rock we call Golgotha, or Calvary. That's the rock on which Jesus 
was crucified. And right under the altar, they believe, is the spot where the cross was placed. A pretty incredible thing to consider. Uh, this next picture is of a 19th century structure, so significantly later structure, called the edicule. And edicule is just a fancy word that means shrine. It's sort of a building within the building. And uh, the belief is that this structure was built on top of the tomb where the body of Jesus was placed. Now, a few of you are already ahead of me on this, and you're like, how do we know that for sure? And we can't know for sure that that was the place. Uh, but there really is some compelling evidence that points in that direction. Uh, but, but even if you don't want to say that was the actual place, this is a place, this church is a place where people have come to remember and contemplate the significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, prior to COVID-19, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre welcomed well over 4 million visitors a year. Uh, before we go any further, what I want to do is take you there through some drone footage and a bit of footage from inside the church. It's just a 30-second video of what this site looks like today should you visit. So let's check this out together. first image you saw in that video was a drone shot coming down on the church from on high. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that today the Church of the Holy Sepulchre stands right in the middle of the old city of Jerusalem. And consequently, when you visit it today, it's almost impossible to imagine what the site would have looked like in the time of Jesus when it was just outside the city walls. But archaeologists tell us that back then, uh, the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was just a rocky hill used by the Roman Empire for crucifixions, and it stood right alongside a defunct limestone quarry into which burial caves for wealthy people had been carved. Here's an artist's rendering of what the site would have looked something like around the year 33 AD, the year Jesus was crucified. Um, and this is not particularly helpful, I know, but hang with me, because this next shot shows you what happened in 326 AD when Roman Emperor Constantine commissioned the construction of a church on this site a project which necessitated the removal of this rock located over the burial cave. And then if you fast forward a few hundred years from this time, you'll see where the edicule was placed, again, right in that original burial cave. And now, it's a bit ironic if you think about it, but for many visitors from all over the world to Israel, the highlight of their trip is a visit to that structure that stands over the rock on which Jesus' body was placed. And I say it's ironic because hundreds of thousands of people each year wait in a line that can last for hours to have the opportunity to enter the edicule four people at a time and see nothing. I've done it, right? Um, and it's an incredible experience precisely because of what isn't there. The tomb, as they say, is empty. And that reality has stood right at the center of the Christian tradition for 2,000 years. In fact, today, all over the world, hundreds of millions of people are gathered in homes and theaters and rooms just like this one 
to celebrate and to affirm the reality that on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus' body wasn't where everybody thought it would be because God had intervened in human history in a way that no one could have imagined. Now, um, I'd argue that it's really easy for us 2,000 years later to miss the wonder of that day. I mean, we know the story. The details are super familiar to us if you spent any time around church. So much so that if we're honest, it's easy for the resurrection of Jesus to start to feel a bit like a parable or an allegory. But you need to know it wasn't a parable or an allegory to Jesus' first disciples. It was an unbelievable, undeniable reality that changed everything for them and went on to change the world. Fortunately, um, a man by the name of John, one of Jesus' first disciples, recorded the experience on that first Easter Sunday for us in his account of the life of Jesus. It's creatively titled John. You can find it in your Bibles. Here's how John described that first Easter Sunday. He writes, Early on the first day of the week for the Jewish people, that's Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, that's one of Jesus' female disciples, went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, of course, the tomb in question here is the place where the body of Jesus had been laid after being crucified. You may remember the story. A few days earlier, on that first Good Friday, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, a man named Nicodemus and another man named Joseph of Arimathea, um, I like to call them Nick and Joe, just to remember you know, who was there, uh, they received permission, probably by bribing the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to take Jesus' body down from the cross and give it a proper burial. Uh, they had placed it in a tomb owned by Joseph's family, a tomb which, by the way, scholars argue probably would have cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000 in today's currency. So that gives you a sense of how much these guys respected Jesus and wanted his body put to rest properly. Uh, and then as the sun was going down after placing Jesus' body in the tomb, they rolled a large stone in front of the entrance. And a few days later, uh, before dawn on Sunday, John tells us a, man, uh, a woman named Mary Magdalene went to visit Jesus' tomb. And just to sort of climb into her mindset on that first Easter Sunday, like you should know that like everybody else who had followed Jesus during his time on earth, Mary believed a lot of things about Jesus that morning. In fact, she believed what many people today believe about Jesus. She believed he was an incredible communicator and an unprecedented miracle worker and a revolutionary leader, and like no one she had ever met before. But on that first Easter Sunday, she also believed that Jesus was dead, and that Jesus would stay dead. Uh, the authors of the accounts of Jesus' life record that Mary went to Jesus' tomb that day in order to re-prepare his body for burial. And you're like, why would she do that? Well, it makes sense, and here's why. She knew that a couple of guys, Nick and Joe, had done it, and that they were in a hurry because they had to do it before the sun was going down on Friday. So she suspected that it may have not been done properly or up to her specifications, which, let's be honest, guys, is probably true, right? And so when Mary arrives and sees the empty tomb, um, she, uh, you, know, you should know that she didn't immediately assume that Jesus had risen from the grave. In her experience, like in your experience, dead people generally stay dead. And so she imagined that the only logical explanation was that someone had stolen Jesus' body. In fact, John tells us, uh, he tells us that she came running to Simon Peter 
and that's one of Jesus' disciples. And then we find this other, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And I absolutely love this verse because you'll notice that John refers to himself here as the one Jesus loved. I mean, it's like the most significant moment in all of human history. And John wants his readers to understand how much he was loved by Jesus. Like, I'm like, John, buddy, you know, someday we'll have a conversation in heaven about this, I'm sure. But like, I can't believe you restrained yourself and, and didn't mention that you were also the most humble disciple of Jesus. I mean, by far, right? I mean, everybody loves John. Uh, anyway, notice that Peter and John and the other disciples aren't at Jesus' tomb that first Sunday morning. If you said, well, where are they? Well, they're hiding because the same people who killed Jesus, they suspected, wanted to kill them. And so they were holed up somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. And if you say, well, what were they talking about? I would argue that they were convinced that Jesus' life and his story was over and that they had to figure out what in the world they were going to do with the rest of their lives. Again, nobody expected a resurrection. In fact, uh, in a man named Luke's account of that first Easter Sunday, he notes something really fascinating, namely that upon hearing of the empty tomb, he tells us that Peter got up and ran to the tomb. So it's not very far. He says, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, honestly, I find that detail very, very compelling. I mean, think about this. The first followers of Jesus documented their disbelief. And that, at least for me, is a big deal. Because if you think about it, if, if they wanted to fabricate a story about a resurrection in order to keep the Jesus movement alive, they never would have written themselves into the story as having lost their faith. You just wouldn't do that. But the disciples chronicled their cowardice and their confusion. They recorded that when Jesus was arrested, they ran and they hid. And that's just not what you would do if you're trying to make up a story that sets you up to lead a movement. If they'd wanted to, you know, make up a story, I bet they'd write something like, you know, well, nobody, nobody believed except for us. We never lost faith. I mean, we were willing to be crucified with Jesus. We knew that after three days, he would rise. We were actually there at the tomb as the sun was coming up and we were counting down and the worship band was ready to kick, right? I mean, we were like three, two, one, cue the angel. Life. You know, that, I mean, that, you know, they didn't do that, right? And they didn't do that because... Well, that's not how it happened. It's like, do you know why all four of the accounts of Jesus' life uh, present the disciples as bewildered, confused, and afraid? Because they were bewildered, confused, and afraid, right? They had no idea what to do. That is until something happened that they weren't expecting, that nobody was expecting, something that changed everything for them. And what's interesting, if you follow the story, and you can, because there's a book called Acts that sort of picks up the actions of the first disciples of Jesus, what you learn is that a few weeks later, Jesus' disciples emerged on the city streets of Jerusalem, and they weren't hiding. They were fearless. And you say, well, what were they talking about? Were they reteaching some of Jesus' sermons? Like the prodigal son always got a good response, right? Like, what were they doing? Well, they weren't teaching what Jesus taught. They were proclaiming that Jesus was alive again and that they had seen him with their own eyes. Not his ideas rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. 
it's interesting, um, in some of my more nerdy moments, I which is often, I guess, but <laughs> I like to read um, New Testament scholars and what they make of this moment, because this really is at the center of, of Christianity. And I just want to share a quote uh, from a writer by the name of David Bentley Hart. And you know the guy's hardcore because he uses his middle name. So if you want to like really be respected in theological circles, just use your middle name and everyone will know what's going on. But anyway, here's what he writes about this. He said, it was not long after Christ's death that his disciples were triumphantly proclaiming that he had risen from the tomb and was living once more. He says, it, it was an incredible claim, obviously, but almost as incredible was the speed with which Jesus' followers recovered from the devastating loss of their leader regrouped and began to preach a common message, and that a message of victory. In other words, the airtight conviction that Jesus had risen from the grave catapulted the disciples out of hiding and gave them incredible courage. In fact, in the account of those first days following the resurrection of Jesus that I mentioned, the book called Acts in the New Testament of your Bible. Uh, the author Luke tells us that a few weeks after the resurrection, Peter and John are walking to the temple in Jerusalem to pray when they encounter a man who had struggled with a physical disability from birth. And they approached him and just said to him, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. And, and, and moments later, like a crowd is gathered because that's the sort of thing Jesus used to do. And Peter seizes the opportunity to address the crowd. He, he turns to them. And, and you should know this crowd is made up of many of the same people who had demanded that Jesus be crucified. So he looks these people in the eye and he says this. You handed Jesus over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. He goes on. You disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. And at this point, they would have to agree. They would say, yeah, we, we definitely did that. He goes on, he says, you killed the author of life. And here's where they would have, chins would have hit the floor here. But God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. And he said, well, that's an incredible claim. What's your evidence? They would say, well, not only have we seen him by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and who you know was made strong. For years, you've walked down the street. Those of you that live in the city, you may have seen this guy every day. You know he can't walk, and now he can. And he's doing it by the power of the resurrected Jesus. Just in case you're wondering, guys, Jesus is back, and we saw him, and he's every bit as powerful as he's ever, but actually, he's more powerful than he's ever been before. And then not surprisingly, Peter's speech was a bit disturbing to the people standing there. And so they run to the Jewish religious leaders and they demand that Peter and John be arrested. And they approached a man by the name of Caiaphas. He was the highest ranking Jewish priest. And they said, listen, Jesus' followers are proclaiming that he has been raised from the dead. And Caiaphas responds, all right, arrest them. We need to stop this thing. But then let me know when you put them on trial because I want to be there. And so Peter and John are arrested, they're put on trial, and Peter is given another chance to address another crowd. This one is full of all the Jewish religious leaders, and I think he's thinking, sweet, and clear things up here, right? So here's what Peter says to them. He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people 
of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And I just imagine the guy who was healed standing there going. He's had a good day, right? He goes on. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So Peter looks at all these Jewish religious leaders and he goes, guys, you've missed it. You had him crucified and God raised him from the dead. So you better be careful because you right now are at odds with God. You're not beyond hope, but you're at odds with God. You're working for the wrong goal. And remember, this is the same Peter who only weeks before believed what many people believed about Jesus, that he was an incredible communicator and he was a great miracle worker and he was a revolutionary who could galvanize the, the energy of the people around being rescued by the Messiah. But he was, he was dead. In fact, Peter believed Jesus was dead until the moment he came face to face with a resurrected Jesus and that changed everything for him. Actually, it changed everything for a whole lot of people. I mean, I mean, think about this. Do you know why the message of Jesus made it out of the first century? In spite of the pressure it was under from both the Jewish religious establishment and the Roman Empire, both of which wanted Christianity shut down. It's like it didn't make it out because of the significance of what Jesus taught, even though he taught some incredible things. And it wasn't the significant things he did, even though he did some very significant things. It was the unbelievable, undeniable reality that he physically rose from the dead. In fact, that's the only reasonable explanation for the survival of the church. I got one more nerd insight I want to share with you. This one from a guy named Gary Habermas. And uh, he doesn't use his middle name, so maybe he's not quite as good. But here, here we go. Here's what Gary says. Uh, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. He says the earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings, which they did, right? They were convinced they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. He says that's what changed their lives and started the church. He says certainly since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. Friends, the reality is that on that first Easter Sunday, when those who knew him best saw Jesus alive again, everything changed. And they knew that they had to spend the rest of their lives telling the world. And they did. Eventually, they wrote down what they had experienced. And in fact, a few years ago, I happened upon an idea that just for me was so, so helpful. Hopefully it'll be for you too. Um, it goes like this. Without Jesus' resurrection, you and I never would have read the New Testament because there wouldn't have been a New Testament. Without a resurrection, no one would have written anything about Jesus. It's the one thing that changed everything. Now, beyond all of that, and that certainly is enough, I think there's something there's something incredibly personal here for each of us as well. And to show you what I mean, I want to briefly return 
to the Edicule. That's that shrine inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre built over the empty tomb where the body of Jesus was laid after being crucified. And a few years ago, I was on a trip to Israel with a bunch of seminary students. And we went into the church. And before going in, in the courtyard outside, our guide challenged us. He says, I, I want to challenge you when you get inside to enter the edicule. So, you know, you're going to have to wait in line. But, and not simply reflect on the reality of the resurrection. But he says, I want you to reflect on the personal implications of the resurrection. He says, I want you to consider the fact that because Jesus rose, we too can rise. Because Jesus rose, we too can rise. And moreover, we can rise, but so can those we have loved and lost. And, and this idea shows up, not surprisingly, in many of the letters that make up the bulk of the New Testament. Many of them written by a pastor named Paul. In fact, in a letter to early Christians living in Greece, who were apparently struggling to believe in Jesus' literal, historical, physical resurrection, Paul writes this, he says, But Christ, Jesus, has indeed been raised from the dead. He says, The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. He goes on, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, who's the first, he's the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. In other words, there will be a day when we will be physically resurrected from the dead and we will be reunited with those we have loved and lost. In order to honor and reflect on that reality, standing outside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, our guide said to us, when you go inside, I want you to think of one person that you long to see again. One person who you will see again because of Jesus. Because he rose, we too will rise. And he says, I don't just want you to think of that person. I want you to actually light a candle and place it near the edicule to remind yourself that the light of a life that has been lost will burn again. And I'm telling you, I wasn't fully prepared for the emotion of that moment for me. Lighting a candle in that space was, was pretty profound. And for me, I walked in that room and I thought of my dad. And um, I lost my dad when I was 24 years old, uh, which means he never met my wife. He never got to meet my kids, his grandkids. And so I lit that candle and reflected on the fact that because of Jesus, one day, he will meet them. He will. And I have to wonder uh, this Easter, who would it be for you? Who do you most long to see again. A father, 
mother, a son, a daughter, a coach, a friend, a grandparent. The absolutely incredible news is that because Jesus rose, we too will rise and we will see again those we have loved and lost. And that's more than a promise. It's a reality that actually has the potential to bring us hope in this life, hope that the story that is being told with our lives ultimately has a good ending, not because we are good, but because our Heavenly Father is good. And that on the cross, he paid the price for the sins that separate us from God. And then on that first Easter Sunday, as we sung in the first half today, death itself was arrested. And that again, that reality has the potential to bring us hope in this life. A living 